0: Church. I'm very glad that you are here this morning. Hey, a couple of things to remind you of. Um, give you a couple of announcements. Uh, number one, don't forget, uh, all this cool pipe and drape and this skirting on the stage that make things really look neat. Don't forget, we've asked you kids, don't play on the stage. Don't let your kids play on the stage. We don't want them cutting themselves on these little things that hold this, the stuff up, nor breaking them. And we don't want them to pull the pipe and drape down on themselves, break their skull, them go to the hospital, you sue us, and then everybody's unhappy. So the best way to do that is keep your kids off the stage behind the pipe and drape. Make sense? If you heard and understand that, raise your right hand. Awesome. Very good. And don't forget also, any information you need to know is available on the website under the little tab on the far right-hand side. If you're looking at your screen, it's on the far-hand side, it's TRCentral. TR Central, right? You get it? And anything you need to know is right there. If you need to know it, go check it. If you heard and understood that one, raise your left hand man you the educator image is just coming out can't help it you're like hear, understand, repeat it, and all that good stuff. you get it and like, hey, you know everybody knows today also is a special day because we're finishing up sixteen verses. This is it. The series is coming to a close we've been studying through uh, our Bible through sixteen signposts to the gospel and how to study uh the Bible through the lens of the gospel and we've we've looked at sixteen specific passages it's helped us to do that today we cap that off in Revelation chapter 21 and the theme being glory, glory. So if you would pray with me and we're going to get after Revelation 21. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We thank you that your word leads us to Jesus, that your word is truly inspired. It is truly able to make one wise for salvation. It is able to rebuke, to... Reproof, to exhort. It is able to do everything for which you set it out and you have spoken it and you have given it to us. And so we revel in that today. And so we pray that you will help us to make sense of Revelation 21. Holy Spirit, we trust you. We ask you to help us now in Jesus' name. Grow your people into Christ. Grow us into maturity in Christ that we would not be waves blown and tossed by the wind and every cunning and crafty doctrine set out by man and the evil one. But in Christ, we would be stable, firm, steadfast, growing up into Him who is the head. pray that you'd pull that off this morning. Take us another step further in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, glory. We've studied the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. I'm not going to recap all of those. You can go back and listen to them on the podcast or on the website under the sermon tab. God creates all things very good. Remember that. God just doesn't do partial stuff. He does very good stuff. So, everything God created is good. As a matter of fact, the framework off of which, this is not in your notes, and MitchJolly.com, the notes are there for you. You can go follow along and, um, and you see all that stuff that, that's posted there for you. So, this isn't there, but just, it comes to mind, so I want to share it with you. The framework for all of created orders, Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to know what's normative, if you want to know what is the baseline of what is normal, it's Genesis 1 and 2. You want normal for created order and our function in it, Genesis 1 and 2. Normal human relationships, Genesis 1 and 2. Issues of sexuality, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 set the stage for what is absolutely center and normal and should be center and normal for created purpose. But Genesis 3 introduces us to the problem, and that is sin and death. Because of the serpent, the evil one, and the rebellion in the heavenlies, that rebellion is injected into the human race. It is injected into created order. And everything from that point forward is broken. But we also see in Genesis 3 that God makes a great promise. And that promise is He's going to crush the rebellion. And He is going to put His heel on the head of the serpent who incited it and brought sin and death. And He's going to crush the evil one and the curse with a savior. So then, all through Scripture, God gives us anticipatory glimpses of the glorious gospel, anticipatory glimpses of the beautiful saving work of King Jesus. He does that in the negative, he does that in the positive. Again, one of the examples I gave you early on is like Judges nineteen through twenty-one, and and remember, that Jesus taught us that. All scripture points to him, and we read these hard passages like Judges 19 to 21, where this Levite takes his what he considers to be his second class wife, that he allows her to be abused by bad people in the city, and she dies. And he goes and cuts her in twelve pieces, and after her death, and sends those pieces all over the tribes of Israel and incites a civil war. And if we read those passages in the Bible, we go, um How we supposed to take me to Jesus from that that's one of those negative examples we look at a bad husband and we say that's not a good husband who's a better husband Ephesians 5 who Jesus who will never mistreat his bride never treat her poorly and in fact he will do nothing but good for his bride so we see even in the negative we're brought to this anticipation of who will be better Enter King Jesus, right? So all through Scripture, God gives us anticipatory glimpses of this serpent crusher and his redemptive work. David is a positive and a negative example. One who is prophet, priest, and king, who does right, kills bad things, highlights justice. But finally, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes at the appointed time. And He enters time and space to reveal the Father's righteousness, which we looked at last week. And to pay the penalty for sin. To rise. And to restate His mission. And I said that carefully. Restate His mission because Jesus doesn't give us anything new. The Great Commission isn't a new plan. It's the covenant He gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 where He intends to be glorified among all the peoples of the earth. So Jesus just restates what He already gave Abraham. When he told Adam and Eve in Genesis one 26 to 26-28, he restates the mission that he's to be glorified among all peoples. And then he ascends to the Father's right hand to general the movement of his church in establishing his kingdom until representatives from all nations have come into his kingdom. Glory. Where we find ourselves now, however, is in the establishing of the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. That's where we are. We're in the grind. We're in the grind of establishing the kingdom, fighting against the dark kingdom of the evil one. This is why, this is why living the faith is hard because it's a grind. It's a victorious grind, but it's a grind nonetheless. And this is where we find ourselves is the establishing of the kingdom, taking back territory that's in darkness for the sake of the gospel. And unless we're living life with blinders on, the curse smacks us in the noggin every now and then and reminds us we're in a fight. I'll give you an illustration. A few years ago, uh, right before my mother passed away, uh, she had Alzheimer's and so she was in a, a lucid moment. And, and so my cousin passed away and... Uh, This is a funny I told this last night at Radical Life Group because we were sharing bad family stories and you guys in our Radical Life Group know this story. So everybody else doesn't. Um, Center Alabama. It's one of those moments where the curse smacks you in the noggin. So my mom has got Alzheimer's. She has a lucid moment. And as she's having a lucid moment, my cousin passes, just up and passes away. No reason, just dies. And so the funeral's being had in Center Alabama. And so we walk into the funeral home through through a cloud of Marlboro and weed. And I'm sorry. It just is my family. I'm I'm survived. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I'm here. I really am. It's God's grace, right? I'm a perfect example of Jesus saving from the depths. Okay. And so we walk through that and we go inside and we go into the place where the casket is at. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. There's a reason for stereotypes. We walk in, and there in front of us now all this is happening simultaneously i 'm telling it to you chronologically, but all this is happening simultaneously in front of me is a crimson red casket that has printed across it roll tied not joking he's got he's got on a crimson short sleeve shirt with a hound 's tooth tie at the head is a white. A, Alabama style, in roses. At the foot is a crimson A, all roses. It gets better. It gets better. And in front of the casket is his dad, my 94-year-old uncle, World War II veteran, and his wife in a fist fight. Awesome! And so I'll rip out my phone to start videoing this because you write cool stuff on your blog. It's Jesus and good stuff. Nobody reads that. But you put some trash out there. 5,000 hits all over the world. And I'm thinking, this is a solid gold moment to make some money on stereotypes. And my bless my mama, she's having a lucid moment. She rips that phone down my head and says, son, you can't do that. That's not right. And I'm like, why not? This is money. We're about to get rich. This stuff only happens in movies, but it's really happening now. And so we, we watch this drama unfold. Funerals in the Jolly Clan are awesome. I've got more stories. But that would take more time. Here's my point. Unless you're living life with blinders on, you're going to get hit in the noggin at some point to be reminded we're in a fight. Because what I just described to you really happened and it's not normal. It's not normal. It's ugly. It's gross. It's grotesque. And the world feeds on it. So much so that even the Christian pastors are ready to video it and put it on the blog. Because like nobody will ever believe this really happened. But the good news is, Jesus has promised that all that brokenness and ugliness will be done away with. And glory will finally and fully be established one day. That stuff's going to go away. And I guarantee you, most of y'all in this room have family like that. Somewhere down the line. And the good news is, Jesus is going to fix all that. So we come to Revelation 21. What do we see? What does it mean? And how do we apply it? How do we obey it? Before we jump into reading the text and observing it, um, I want to give you a couple couple things. Uh, number one, um, we're going to try to cover all of Revelation 21. And we're going to do it with what you've heard me say is a lick and a promise. Country slang for we're just going to go through it real quick. Okay? So this is not in any way in great detail. We preached through Revelation maybe five years ago. And you can go back and find that information there and maybe hear it in a little more detail. Secondly, I really want to get to application because there's great application here. So we're going to speed through some of the observations. Because there's some fantastic obedience for us. And third... I want to make sure you at least have some kind of framework for reading and understanding the book of Revelation. It would be absolutely poor of me to read this and do some work on it without explaining to you how to read the book of Revelation. So let me try to do that very quickly. I hope you understand, as a human being who hopefully reads words and and opens a book or or at least a, a tablet and tries to read words, that genre... ...matters when it comes to interpretation. I hope you understand that. Genre matters when it comes to interpretation, right? Fiction, right? You don't take fiction and go try to apply it. It's fiction, right? Um, Historical narrative, right? Right? Like Stephen Ambrose, right? Anybody ever read Stephen Ambrose, World War II historian, like D-Day, Band of Brothers, like those great. If you're a man in here and hadn't read those books, you need to repent. Go get Band of Brothers, read it. Great read, right? Great books, historical narrative. Are telling this is history. This really happened, and and there's good lessons to be learned in that. And, and then there's like there's there's a mystery, which is fiction. All kinds of genres. There's wisdom literature. and and all kinds of genres, and how you read and interpret changes with the type of genre. What you have here in the book of Revelation, and some in the book of Daniel, is a genre of literature called apocalyptic, okay? They say, okay, that's more than I came to, that's more than I wanted to know this morning. This is very important, because how you read apocalyptic material is very important. Number one, you don't read apocalyptic material literally. It's not intended to be read literally, okay? People read Revelation and they read it literally and they make all kinds of messes out of it. And then some people go, oh, you just say it's not supposed to be the Bible literally. Right. Not in apocalyptic genre. You take the application literally when you know what it means But in order to know what it means, you've got to read through the lens of the genre to get there, okay? So, very important. Now, here's an illustration to help us get there. Then we're going to look at Revelation 21 and glory, okay? Imagine for a moment, you are tasked with going to the island of Papua New Guinea and engaging a tribe that's never seen or met anyone outside their tribe ever in their history. We're talking, and by the way, those tribes still exist. So if Jesus ignites your passion to go take the gospel there, get after it. right? So let's say you're tasked to go tell this tribe who's never seen anyone outside their tribe thousands of years of history, no technology, no nothing, and you have to go tell them about electricity. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do? We've got some concept of electricity because we've been educated with modern technology, but these guys still use hardwood to make arrows and obsidian to make arrowheads and feathers for fletching and hardwood uh, uh, sticks for bows and sinews from animals for string. And you've got to tell them about electricity. How are you going to do that? Well, Here's an example. Here's what you might say. Chief, I want to share with you something that's going to make your life better. There's this powerful spirit. And this spirit lives way, way, way over on the other side of this island. But this spirit's going to make life better. So what we're going to do is we're going to put up some trees and lines from this spirit to your place. And we're going to put some vines on these trees through which this spirit can come. And we're going to run these vines down into your hut. And we're going to do something amazing. We're going to put a firebox in your hut that when the spirit comes into it, It makes it hot without smoke. And you can heat your water and boil your water without smoke in your hut. Even better, this Spirit's going to come through these vines into your hut and there's going to be a little sun up in your hut. It's going to give light to your hut. And you're going to be able to see and, and do more things at night that you wouldn't be able to do before. Now, what did I just describe to you? I took a guy who has no concept of what electricity is and used what he understood to communicate about electricity. Is everybody tracking with me here for a moment? That's what's happening in apocalyptic genre. Nobody writes like this anymore. This genre was important about 300 AD to 300, uh, 300 BC to 300 AD. Nobody writes in apocalyptic genre anymore and nobody really bothers to try to learn how to read it anymore. There's some good resources out there, but that's not the point of this morning. What I want you to see is that we come to Revelation 21. John is saying something. He's saying something you and I can understand. But he's doing it in a genre that was popular in his day. And what he's doing is he's communicating future events in the language of the people he's writing to. Now, who's he writing to? The seven churches of Asia. Remember? Revelation 2, 3, right? 4... He's writing to the seven churches of Asia. So what he's doing is writing about future events using terminology and ideas that they can understand. Now what's crazy about the book of Revelation is it is all about Jesus. Revelation isn't about Satan. It's not about like this, some crazy kingdom that's coming now and gonna invade Israel and like this. You maybe have some funky framework of what this is set it aside okay Revelation is all about King Jesus as a matter of fact Revelation 1 starts the apocalypsis the revelation of Jesus the revealing of Jesus and the whole rest of the book is showing us who is the one who is able to open the book who is the one able to run history who is the one in charge of war who is the one in charge of death who is the one in charge of economics who is the one that is opening and making all things happen none other than Jesus the central goal of the book of Revelation is showing Jesus is King that's the goal He's king. He's everything. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the middle. He's ruling all things. And when he returns, he's going to set all things right. And that's where we pick up in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, John begins to describe for his readers what it's going to be like when the kingdom is fully and finally established. Now this is where Christians get our great hope as we look at this passage and we find buried up here in Revelation 21 that there is for us a fantastic hope that Jesus is going to make all things new. He's going to do away with the ugliness of the curse. He is forever and finally going to crush the head of the serpent and everything that's broke, like those center Alabama funerals to wherever your hometown funeral is in your family and everything broke, Jesus is going to fix and set right. So here we go. What do we see? What's the banner over Revelation 21? It is there is a new creation for God's new people. There's a new creation for God's new people. So, verse 1. First observation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Do you guys remember? Eric preached in, from Isaiah a few weeks back looking forward to this reestablishing of the kingdom. So John is taking the passages that already been written that Jesus has already given and he's coming here and showing it come full circle. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What we see here is a newly created order with no curse, no sin and no evil. No curse, no sin, no evil. Now, say, where do you get that at? When John says, and the sea was no more, do not mistake that for a statement about the hydrology of the new heaven and the new earth. If you go back and read the book of Revelation clearly, you'll find that bad things come out of the sea everywhere in the book. Bad things. The evil spirits, like frogs, come up out of the sea. The beast comes up out of the sea false prophet out of the sea everything bad comes out of the sea as a matter of fact to these first century Jews they don't like the sea so much that they call a lake in the middle of their country the sea of Galilee it's a lake right they are not seafaring people And as a matter of fact, if you go far enough back into their history, you'll find pagan stories about pagan gods in the sea, and the sea being the source of all sorts of evil. So for the mind of John's readers, he's letting them know that what you consider to be a source of evil, just know it's going away. Not the sea, but the sin and the evil. The sin and the evil are going to be gone. So in other words, this new created order for God's people, this newly created order will have no curse, no sin, and no evil in it. So, guess what? Not only has Jesus purchased individuals for salvation, but He is promising that He's going to set right what got broke in Genesis 3 in created order. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It will be fixed. It will be repaired. Can you imagine earth life with no curse of sin on it? Like, it's so good now for many people that we can't imagine dying and leaving this behind. Can you imagine what it's like with no sin, no curse, no evil? The source of evil is done. The source of the curse has gone away. He makes all things new. There will be no curse, there will be no sin, and there will be no evil. Observation number two, from verse two, and then verse nine through twenty-one. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he picks back up with this image in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what's this holy city? He just told you. It's the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the wife of the Lamb? Well, let's start here. Who's the Lamb? Chapter 5. Jesus. Who's His bride? The church. So what's he describing here? In this heavenly city, he's describing the people of God, the church. Now, just just keep reading some observations after we keep reading. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance. So who's the radiance of the people of God? It's God's glory. It's God's image. Like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. And he measured the city with with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. That's cool. I ain't never seen gold that pure. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every fine jewel, We see here in our second observation, this new Jerusalem, the holy city, the people of God, the church, is fully and finally transformed and made practically righteous in Christ. Remember last week we talked about justification. We talked about the righteousness of God. And we talked about when we get saved, Jesus counts us as righteous, though we're not practically righteous. And so the work of sanctification is the Holy Spirit making us practically righteous. Well, John gives us a vision of the completion of that work. The bride... The people of God, the church, is finally transformed and made practically righteous in Christ. And let's unpack very quickly some of what we see here. We see in verse 9 through 11 that God's glory will be our radiance. That is, we will finally, completely, perfectly be in the image of God. We, we unpacked that last week and we talked about the glory of God. The glory of God being the image of God in man. And when he speaks of our radiance being the glory of God, what John is saying to us is we will finally image forth God perfectly. That's awesome. A little piece of good news for you, Christian. If you belong to Jesus, He put His Spirit in you and that's where He's taking you. It's to that place where fully and finally we will radiance forth God's image perfectly. And He will pull it off. So, if you thirst for righteousness, remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The day is coming when that hunger for righteousness will be fulfilled. He will make you practically righteous, and sin will be no more. So, struggle well. Fight well, because the day is coming where you will perfectly image forth God in all of His perfection. That's good news. Really good news. So keep struggling. Struggle on. We see here in verse 12 to 17 that the city, the people of God, has a very thick wall around it. Notice that wall is 144 cubits. Has anybody ever played with the little notes in your Bible that tell you how long a cubit is and done the math? That's 214 feet thick. That's a thick wall. Don't know if you know that or not. But 214 feet a long way. And that's how thick the wall is. What in the world is John saying? What did walls do for a city in that day? It protected them. The day is coming, dear Christian, where we'll be well protected forever. And the well protection will be the abolishing of all evil and there'll be nothing that can harm us ever again. The day is coming. We lock our doors at night because we fear bad guys. And some of us are ready for those bad guys. We just dare them to come in. I'm ready. But the very fact that we have to be prepared speaks that there's something there that can harm, but the day is coming for the people of God in this new order where our well-protection will be the abolishing of evil. In other words, we were just well-protected because Jesus has done away with everything that will harm. Another observation here we see in verse 12 is there are twelve gates with the names of the tribes I don't know if you've noticed or not but if you go back to Revelation in the early parts um, chapter 6 and chapter 7 and there's some 144,000 which unfortunately some cults talk about that being only the number of people that will ever be saved Jehovah's Witness and things like that if you've noticed you read some of these lists they're missing tribes my goal is to help you see why they're missing that's in a different chapter of the book here's the point All twelve tribes are accounted for. Does that mean that physically and literally it'll just be the twelve tribes of Israel? No. What John's letting you know is nobody's missing. In other words, all of God's elect will have been saved and they will be well protected and will perfectly image forth God's glory. In other words, Jesus will not fail to save anyone He intends to save. Why? Because Jesus never fails. There will be no one missing from the kingdom of heaven that Jesus intends to be there. In other words, the gospel always succeeds to save God's people. It's powerful and effective. Notice here also in verse 14, there are 12 foundations with the names of the apostles on them. Does that mean the apostles are more special than you and me? No. The apostles and the apostolic gifting was what, according to Ephesians, tells us is the foundational work of God in establishing the church. The apostolic gifting is that gifting of establishing a church where it's never been established before. In other words, the people of God are going to be well-constructed. When Jesus finishes His church, we will be well-constructed. We'll be put together well. Listen, I don't know if you noticed or not, but church is hard. Church is just hard. Ask some of those people in the back who do more than their share. Ask these people in the band who sing. And some Sundays have radical kids at the same time. And all you notice or not, but they sing, go work, and then come back and sing and leave their shift, and somebody covers it. Church life is hard. If you're going to serve in the kingdom, it's difficult. There are people up here last night working on the monitors. Church life is hard. Loving each other is hard because sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes God brings people into our lives who aren't very lovable. But what Jesus is doing is, He's building His church. Matthew 16, right? I will build my church. Jesus is building a construction, and the construction is His bride, His people. And we will be well constructed, because Jesus doesn't build trash. He builds perfect cities. And we, the city of God, the people of God, will be well constructed, put together well to last. For eternity. This is why Jesus loves the church. This is why there's no such thing as fellowship apart from the church for the people of God. You don't find fellowship. You you may find friendship. You may find heart connections to people. But that's not covenant fellowship. That is only had by the Holy Spirit. Binding people together from all kinds of backgrounds under one mission. Because see, it's real easy to form relationships with white, middle class, whatever your genre is, whatever you like. Because I can go find people who like what I like. You like guns, you like football, you like outside stuff, and same income, so you kind of got the same stuff. And we can get together in those little groups, we all like the same stuff. That's easy. You don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. The rest of the world does that. What's beautiful is when Jesus takes people who would not normally get together and He puts them together and binds them in heart and soul under the mission of the Gospel for His glory among all nations and they get along well-constructed because Jesus doesn't build trash. (laughs) Right? That's what the church is supposed to look like. And Jesus is letting us know it will get done. It will get done. And this is why with confidence we can engage this is why with confidence we preach the Gospel. Because we can read Revelation 21 and say, Jesus pulls it off! Awesome! Right? So guess what? If you don't do anything, you don't really believe this. Right? When you believe this. Jesus is going to well construct His people. Isn't that awesome? Another thing we see here in verse 15 and 16 is this city is 300... Well. I'm giving you the mileage. It's 12,000 stadia. Can I do the map on the stadia? That's 1,380 miles long. Notice it's length, width, and height. Verse 16 and 17. So the people of God, the church, is 1,380 miles long, wide, and high. A couple of observations here. I got on my little Apple map on my MacBook Pro. And I just started in my mind because... Because Jennifer and I drove from Rome to Fort Worth a lot. More than I wanted to. And we know how far it is from Rome to Fort Worth. So I started thinking, okay, if Rome to Fort Worth is this, then that farther west in Texas is more like this. So I just, I just said starting point, Rome, Georgia, ending point, El Paso, Texas. You want to know the mileage that popped up? 1,390 miles. So El Paso, Rome to El Paso is just 10 miles further than the people of God are. Long, wide, and high. Now, is Jesus saying that His people big? No. Because that's a pretty wide load. What He's saying here is, and notice it's long, wide, and high. So 1,380 miles. Rome to El Paso. Long, wide, and high. What's John saying to us here? What John's saying is, there's going to be many. There's going to be many. And we will be in God's presence. If you notice here, not just long, wide, and high. Think about it for a second. You go back to your Old Testament. This is the shape of the inner sanctuary of the temple. Equal measurements, long, wide, and high. So what he's describing here is a very large... Space shaped like the temple where god 's presence was. What's he saying, Many, many people from all nations, and they are in god 's presence. That temple, that perfectly cubed sphere where God met with his people, was the place they know God was and represented his presence among his people. So when John 's describing this very, very large area that is shaped like the temple, He's letting us know there are going to be people from all nations there and they will be in His presence. Hey guys, in the eternal kingdom, we will be with all nations and we will be present with the Lord. Present. Fully present. Fully present. How fully present? Well, we're about to see in just a minute. We'll see that in verse 3 and verse 22. The walls are built with precious stones. The foundations are covered with jewels of many kinds. What is John saying? We will be beautiful. We'll be beautiful. Jesus is beautifying His bride and making us holy. We see in verse 21, the streets are made with gold so pure that they're transparent. We will be holy. Listen, if you struggle with your sin, fear not, Jesus will take it away fully and finally one day. It may be the day we crawl in the grave, but He'll take it away. He's going to finish us. We're going to be beautiful. We're going to be sin free. What's another observation we see? Verse 3 and then verse 22. We see here that God himself will be present with his people and nothing will compete for his glory. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Purpose clause. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for the temple anymore. Why? Because God Himself will be present face to face. Listen, this is why when you read in your Bible, your faith will become sight. This is what He's talking about. This The God... Who checked, I mean, just check this out. You go back and read. What did Moses get to see? He saw a burning bush. Elijah. These guys get to see the backside of God's glory. The prophets, Ezekiel chapter 21, they see this vision just of the glory of God. Not God Himself, but just the glory of God. And these these, these crazy like the Jasper and thrones of ivory and fire and glass and all this crazy stuff. And he says, just the glory of God. They don't even get to see Him. Just see the glory that surrounds Him. Here, here, there's no temple anymore. None of that stuff. He Himself is present with us. In other words, your faith will become sight. The God you don't see, you will see face to face, in person, personally. that's good news. God Himself will be present. We see here, verse 23... The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light. I think it's very important to note here, I'm kind of skipping down because it's just right after verse 22. Nothing competes for God's glory. John's not saying there's not going to be a sun or moon. Nothing wrong with the sun or moon. What he's saying to us here is nothing's going to compete for God's glory. The competition's over. If you look at Psalm 14.1, you don't have to go there. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. So what did God do? He did Psalm 19 one, the heavens declared the glory of God. And day to day proclaims his handiwork. So what did God do to combat the competition for his glory? He built the message of himself into every piece of creation. So that the fool will say there's no God, but God will witness from the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the earth, everything. I am. The day's going to come where we won't need the sun to tell us he is because we'll see him face to face. Doesn't mean the sun won't be there. Sun's good. It's necessary to grow stuff. And we learn here in the text later on that we're going to still be growing stuff, so we're going to still need the sun. The point is the sun won't compete for His glory because you know what did people do? What did we read in Romans chapter 1? People used the sun and started worshipping it. People started worshipping trees and animals and creatures. So there will no longer be anything that will compete for His glory because we'll see Him face to face. We'll see the sun for what it is, the stars for what they are, and there will be nothing compete for His glory because you know what? Right now everything competes for His glory. Everything. Our desire to be number one, our desire to get more, our desire to have, our desire to be, everything competes for God's glory. Everything. Cars, houses, people. And one day that will be taken away and there will be nothing that will compete for God's glory ever again. I don't know about you, but i love for that pressure to be gone. I'm looking forward to that day where there will be nothing that will compete for the precious glory and attention of Jesus. We see in verse five to seven here I'm going to skip over some of these I want to go quickly to some application oh, let me go to verse four let's do verse four God himself will minister to his people and he's going to do so by removing the old and cursed order verse four he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away a little quote for you here eternal blessedness here in verse four is couched in negation You notice what he's saying. He's telling you what's not there. Right? And what's not there anymore. Right? Tears. Not not sad tears. Death. Mourning. Crying. Pain. Eternal blessedness is couched in negations because the new and glorious order is more easily pictured in terms of what it replaces than by an attempt to describe what is largely inconceivable in our present state. That's kind of fun. So John's going, i got to use this strange language to get you to understand because it's so amazing you don't have a framework for it. So I'll just tell you what's not there. That that makes me excited for the eternal kingdom of heaven. It's like, I can't, there's no framework for me to understand how stinking good it is. Because all I know is crying and pain and mourning and difficult things. And there's no framework to understand the blessedness of it. So he just tells me in terms of what's not there anymore. I don't know about you, but that creates anticipation. I want to go. I'm excited for the day. I'm not not dreading it. I'm looking forward to it. Because death is my slave to take me into the kingdom. It is not my master anymore. We see here in verse 5 to 7, God makes all things new. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. There's no uncertainty in God's plan and its execution. Jesus will pull this off. He's the beginning and he is the end. Therefore, the middle is never in question. And part of the challenge for us is in the middle of this fight, we wonder, Jesus, can you do this? Because it doesn't appear to be going our way. It's definitely not going my way. And he says to these Christians who are struggling, go read the book of Revelation. This isn't easy for some of them. As a matter of fact, John says throughout the book, this here is a call for perseverance. So hang on. <laughs> this is to let you know this is going to get hard. So therefore, hang on. And Jesus lets them know, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm waiting for you at the end, so hang on. So therefore, the middle is not in question for us. By His grace, we can persevere. He says to the thirsty, they may come and drink. Thirst all through the Bible is used to depict one's desire for God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, right? right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied Jesus is letting us know that deep inner thirst in your soul that you so often replace with stuff I'll satisfy it finally forever because it's done now God is the perfect father to his people he says you'll have this heritage I'll be your God you'll be my people I'll be the father you'll be my children we'll know fatherhood perfectly Verse eight and twenty-seven we see that God will execute justice on all those who are known by their sin, not by Jesus' righteousness. The unfortunate thing is hell is real. It's the consequence of the fall. We read in chapter twenty of Revelation it was created for Satan and his angels, and is also the place where God sends all those who will not find their righteousness in Christ. He says but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable the murderers the sexually immoral the sorcerers the idolaters and the liars their portion will be in the lake of the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death So God's going to execute justice finally and forever. Verse 23, we see nothing will compete for God's glory. We saw that already. Verse 24 to 26, the earth and God's new people will be perfectly productive in it and bring it as an offering to the Lord. This is cool. By its light. What, what light? The light of the Lamb. In other words, by Jesus, by Jesus' glory. By his truth, by his righteousness will the nations walk. No longer will nations walk in lying and cheating and manipulating and thieving and stealing and all the negative things that come in that political world. By the light of Jesus, by his truth, will the nations walk. In other words, in the kingdom there are gonna be nations. The kingdom of heaven is real. It's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp, singing songs all day. It is life without sin. It's the Garden of Eden regained. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. All of the good things representing God and His eternal kingdom will be done and brought to Jesus as a sacrifice of praise. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night. In other words, there's never a moment where we just need downtime. Can you imagine functioning perfectly in your gifting forever and never being tired? That's awesome. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Man, that's, that's good heaven right there. That's the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is letting His people know this is coming. So buck up. Take hope. It's going to be okay. So here are our points of obedience. Number one, and I've said it a couple times, but it bears repeating, encouragement. Take courage. Take courage. Listen, the grind is hard. If you just, man, just, there are times when I get, I can't wait to get overseas. Because i just be honest with you, life is easier. Every time I get on a plane and I go somewhere, I get over there and think, Jesus, I have to go back. And I, I do this. I tell my family when I come back, I, when we drive around in our places, I try to imagine us there. You there with me. Us there. Never coming back here. And and, and my reasoning is just selfish. And to be honest with you. It's just totally selfish. Because, I mean, I do want to make much of Jesus, but half of it is I just want it to be easier. Because it's hard to live here. Because, number one, things only get more expensive. I just added a 16 year old to the insurance and I got a 14 year old that's coming next and a 12 year old that's coming after that. And it just, it, so it's times three. And I don't make that because I don't know where it's going to come from. My wife just got half her job cut. So I don't know. What am I going to do? If I move over there, I ain't got to worry about it. It's easier there. So here's my point. If you're grinding it out like we are, just trying to survive, Trying to put food on the table, trying to live here. Take courage. Jesus has got it all. I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to choir right now because I need to hear that. I'm just trying to serve Jesus. I could go, I could go use my education and make more money. Do better. And sometimes I think maybe I need to. And here's my point, church. Take courage. Take courage. Jesus is going to make all things new. We grind it out. We stay faithful. We obey Him. He will fully extinguish the curse. And He will make all things new. And He will do so quite soon. So take courage. If you're grinding it out, keep grinding it out. It's okay. There's a statement I like to say often. It's rise and grind. It's time to rise and grind. Right? Because that's life. That's life. Man, if, if, if you're one of those blessed people that just have a part-time job and subsist on somebody else, God bless you. But some of us got to grind. Some of us got to get up and get after it. And you know what? If you try to get after it and do so for the sake of the kingdom, it's hard. It's hard. Because not only are you trying to survive, you're trying to make Jesus big. And sometimes fears and all kinds of things come at you. The curse comes at us hard. You know, in sports terms, basketball terms, the curse comes hard in the paint and will dunk on you in a heartbeat and leave you posterized. So church, take courage. Jesus is going to set all that right. He has us. He will not let us go. He will bring the kingdom. So take great courage. And I said here, He'll do it soon. This is very important to everything Jesus said in the New Testament. I don't know if you paid attention, but when you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about the soonness of the kingdom. And what we have a tendency to do is we think in terms of years. And we can't help that because we live in time and space. Totally get it. He created time and space. We live in it. So we happen to think in time and space. But you notice in Jesus' parables, He always talks about we don't know the day or the hour, so stay ready, stay ready, stay ready, stay ready, stay ready, stay ready, stay ready. Why did Jesus do that? Here's why. Because Jesus fulfilled everything written in the Old Testament. But that's another sermon for another time. And we said it all through 16 verses. Acts 13, 32, we learn in that passage that everything written in the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, there's no outstanding promise of God left to be fulfilled. Therefore, Jesus said the things He said... Stand fast, wait, it's been done, all has been accomplished, it's fulfilled in me. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, it truly, literally, could be any moment He finishes the Great Commission. Therefore, He said, don't be caught. Don't be caught in His parables like the wicked servant getting drunk and beating the slaves, thinking the Master will be a long time in His coming, because at that moment, when they least expect it, I will return and they won't be ready, and they'll be cast in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Five foolish virgins, five wise virgins. The five wise were ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And they had their their oil and their lamps trimmed, but the foolish were sleeping because they were tired. And the bridegroom shows up and the foolish was, Hey, give me some oil. We don't have any oil for you. You weren't ready. This is Jesus telling this story. And so Jesus' point, be ready. You don't know. So therefore, stay awake. Stay ready. Have your lamps trimmed. Be ready because I'm coming. I've fulfilled everything. You're at the end of days. And literally, you've got to understand, that's why we read our Bibles. We are at the end of days. It truly could be any moment. So therefore, Jesus said, be ready. we got time to be accumulating. We need to be laying out. We The lamps need to be burning. We'd be ready for his return. So take courage if you're grinding. It's not in waste, it's obeying Jesus. It's obeying Jesus. This is why then you go on and read in the New Testament all this good stuff about persevering and staying true and fighting for the faith because we're waiting. We're living a life of waiting. So take courage, church. Stay lean. Stay focused. Stay on task. Jesus is going to make Revelation 21 happen. Number two. How do we obey? Number two. Since God's restoration of all things is public, right? This, this is important here. What Jesus is doing, he's not doing behind a closed door. Jesus is building his kingdom, he's building his church. And and apparently, this comes fairly publicly because you go back and read chapter 19, he returns on a white horse and he's, he's ruling the nations. And it's very clear. You might read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and we read that when Jesus comes, all I see him. This isn't silent. There ain't no silent coming where nobody knows. That's not in the text. It is clearly written, the nations will see Him and mourn. Why? Because they realize, uh uh-oh. He was right, we were wrong. But it's too late. So they mourn. So, since God's restoration of all things is public, then our engagement to hurry its establishment through disciple-making must be public. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel will be preached in all nations, then the end comes. So, So, the scope is all nations. And we are getting closer every day. So since Jesus' restoration of all things is in public, then our engagement to hurry its establishment through disciple-making must be public. Therefore, disciple-making is a public square issue. The church in the West have been left behind when it comes to disciple-making because we hide in multiple Bible studies and in dark corners afraid to take Jesus into the public square. And the reality is the gospel has always belonged in the public square. In other words, we try to make evangelism an issue of just personal, quiet conversations on the side. And that is never, ever, ever, ever the large-scale work of the gospel. The large-scale work of the gospel is always a public square issue. Just take Acts 17 for a prime example. How did Paul do evangelism in the city of Athens? Did he huddle up and start a little Bible study over here and hope some lost people came? Did he? Did he? He walked right into the middle of the religious establishment, respected their traditions, and said, I see you're a very religious people. He didn't trash them. and He could have. He said, I see you're very religious people. As a matter of fact, you're so thorough, you wanted to make sure you covered your bases so you have an altar to an unknown God. He did this in the public square. He did this out in public. And he said, so what you worship in ignorance, let me tell you who he is. And he had a public discourse about Jesus and the resurrection. And we learned that some people made fun, but some believed. The gospel is a public square issue. Meaning we have to be public people seeking people's salvation and the establishment of right and truth and order. Because Jesus is doing that Publicly. Read Ephesians chapter 1, right? Verse 7 to 10. Jesus is actively bringing all things back under His rule. He's working in all domains of society. And so therefore, since created order isn't going away, and this is where our eschatology gets jacked. Is we, we have an eschatology in some of our circles that leads us to believe we're just going up in the sky. And this is going away completely so we can avoid all this. Quit all this. Hold up in a Bible study. Hope somebody shows up and learns about Jesus and move on. That's not what the Bible teaches. Evangelism is a public square issue where we take Jesus public. We do good things, restore order in Jesus' name. Not neglecting the salvation of people, but at the same time establishing justice, right, truth, and order in the public square. And we see that some believe and some don't, but that's not up to us. Our job is to preach the gospel. Do right. Jesus will be in charge of everything else, which is one of the reasons we're doing September 9th right in this room. So I've told you for several weeks, I'm inviting you into my harvest field. When Nadine comes in here and he shares with us on that Saturday morning what Islam believes, that event is intended to put the gospel in the public sphere. That's why I go to the Islamic Center and make friends is because the gospel belongs in the public. It belongs in the city square. It belongs out in public. And let Jesus do sorting out. Which is why I'm inviting you to come into this harvest field and engage and learn so that you know how to have a conversation at Walmart. Or at Starbucks on Tuesday night late when people from the Islamic Center show up in mass and discuss theology. Because the gospel belongs in the public square. It's how they did it. And since Jesus' restoration is public, our disciple-making has to be public, not in the hidden back rooms of somewhere. So listen, if we're going to take the gospel seriously, church, we have to simply get out of our comfort places and we have to go public with Jesus. It's obedience to the Bible. And so, three of us, church, I want to challenge you. I'm going to keep pushing you. Get in the public square. Get in the public square. Get in the public square. Find ways to get in the public square. Your job is public square. If you work in a non-Christian place, your job is in the public square. Take Jesus public. Do something to put Jesus in the public square. Will it be hard? Yes. Will you be shut down? Yes. That's why you got the Bible to go read all these great examples of how to do what's next when they shut you down. If you want to know how to do that, go read Luke 12. Jesus gives some very practical examples on what to do. Since Jesus' restoration of all things is public, our gospel work has to be public. We don't hide anything. Guys, there's nothing to hide. This is one of the beautiful things about engaging domains of society. When we go over at the end of this month, and our team goes, and we're trekking in the Himalaya, to these remote villages where the gospel's never been, we don't have to hide the fact that we're Christians. We're Christians and we're trekking in a place where people from all over the world trek. And we're doing it with a guy who follows Jesus and he owns a company. And he gets paid to take people all over the world. And so we're discipling people because that's what Christians do. And we're there to trek with this guy because that's how he makes his living. We don't have to hide the fact that we worship Jesus. We don't do that. We don't hide anything. We're integrous. You ask, am I a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Are you a pastor? Yes, I'm a pastor. We don't lie. There's no such thing as lying and being integrous with the gospel. Right? And so much of our enterprise is set up on clandestine lying in the back rooms. Telling people we do one thing and we do something else. The gospel's public square. So take it public and receive every consequence that comes our way for the sake of the gospel. Good and bad. Does that make sense? Because Jesus isn't restoring the kingdom in some back room in a dark corner. It's a public activity. His kingdom will be established. Righteousness will be established. Sin will be done away with. And it's our task to participate with Him in that. Does that make sense? Which is another reason we need to be here. Is This is where we equip you. This is where we open the Bible and talk about these things. This is why we teach kids domains in the back. And we teach them about engaging domains. And we teach them about the gospel. And how to engage with the gospel. What the gospel is. That's why student ministry is set up the way it's set up. So our kids learn this message and learn to take it when they leave here and do something with it. We seek to equip you so you need to be here. Because we're teaching you how to be in the public square. So that when you are in the public square, you can perform for the sake of Jesus and His kingdom. Does that make sense? It's public square. And since God's restoring all things, number three, and we're ambassadors of His work, then we need to meaningfully and obediently and passionately engage our domains. And you know where you're not going to learn that? You're not going to learn that from Christian books. You think, like, gosh, he's like lost his absolute stinking mind. I've not found hardly any Christian author writing how to meaningfully engage the world. I read very broadly. I'm reading a book now called Originals and I actually put it in the notes. It's how nonconformists move the world by Adam Grant's New York Times bestseller. He actually talks about domains in the book. He talks about domains. And he talks about how nonconformists move the world. And all he's doing is looking at people who've shaped history and how they didn't fit in the framework of making A's. Matter of fact, many of them dropped out of college. Why? Because they were too busy not fitting in. But they're the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs. Everybody heard of Warby Parker? Online glasses buying? These guys dropped out of school. Some of them kept on going. Some of them, it's crazy. And here's the deal: they're talking about engaging domains of society and they're not Christians. We're talking about how to have another Bible study. They're talking about shaping history with things that aren't even the gospel. And what I want to say to us is, we as Christians need to be about the job of ambassadoring the gospel into every domain of society. We need to meaningfully engage. Which means we need to read broadly, widely, and practice some things some other guys have figured out ahead of us who don't even have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, meaningfully engage. Ask questions. Get in the public square and work. And talk about Jesus. And fix things that are broken. And you know what will happen? Revelation 21. Church, we are to be militant. Pastor Jim taught me that language. That comes out of not Baptist background. But the church militant is the church mobilized, engaged. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. And finally, let's get a head start on Revelation 21 by doing Revelation 4 and 5. So what in the world did they do in Revelation 4 and 5? We get this amazing scene. There's the throne of God. And around it are 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones are 24 elders. I have no clue who those guys are. But what we see in that scene is they fall down before the throne and they worship and they cast their crowns at the feet of the king. And they discover a problem. There's this book and nobody has authority over it. And John starts crying. He says, whoa, relax. The line of the tribe of Judah. He is able to open the book, sealed with Seven Seals. And the rest of the book is about Jesus running history. (laughs) And what are they doing? They're singing holy. Holy, holy is the Lord Lord God the Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and wisdom and might. So we're going to get a head start on Revelation 21 by doing what they did in chapter 4 and 5, and that's worship. People who worship right engage well. You want to know why? Because they know who the object of their affection is and who it is they seek to please. And it's nobody else but Jesus. So when you worship right, you'll engage right. Because when you walk out of here, you can't help it. Jesus is my everything, so I guess He better be everything tomorrow when I get up. And you'll grind. You'll rise and grind. So it starts in our worship. So let's get a head start on Revelation 21 by worshiping well today. Would you join me in worshiping well? Let's dare not leave this room and fail to lay before Jesus our everything and our best. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We need You, Holy Spirit, to make much of Yourself and teach us how to make much of You. We need You to lead us in righteousness right now. We need You to lead us into the truth. We need You to help us see more of Jesus. We pray You would do that right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would cause Your Word to be clear. We pray that You would cause the truth of Your Word to transform us. We ask You to tear down walls and barriers that keep us from Jesus. Keep us from Your kingdom. Keep us from doing Your work. Pray that you crush idols. Crush things that we have a greater affection for than Jesus. And that would be a good thing. It may hurt, but it would be a good thing. It would be good for us. Just like a good shot of medicine is good for us. We might need you to do that for us today. I need you to do that in me. So I ask you to do that. I want to give you permission. I want to obey you. So help crush those things in my heart. And I pray you do that in your people. I pray you grow us into Christ. Make us a maturing people. Who love. Who are joyful. Who are unified and who are peaceful. We want you to do that in us and in our body. Lord Jesus, pray that You would empower our worship. That it would truly be casting our crowns before Your feet. Everything that's dear to us is nothing compared to You. So may we lay them before You. And do that now in Jesus' name.